Hello, I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, creator of the Incandescent Radio Network, here with my friend and colleague, Tony Farmer, host of the Black Lives Matter radio show. We are thrilled you are here with us today. So let's get started. We are live. Welcome to this week's episode of the Black Lives Matter radio show on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the shows. Thrilled to introduce you once again to the wonderful Tony Farmer, a diversity and inclusion expert, certified life coach, and our host of the show. We are both honored to welcome tonight's guest, Dr. Tawana Burris, president of the Diverse of Coach Diversity Institute. She is a best-selling author, trainer, and an ICF professional certified coach, which is a very big deal. Uh, she's based in Washington, DC, and is a sought after executive coach on a mission to empower diverse communities. Tawana says, my role is to test, retest, and ultimately drive the organization's overreaching vision, strategy, and tactical direction. And she has worked with so many organizations. So I'm gonna throw it over to you, Tony, and Tawana, have a great, great time. Thank you so much, Hope, and thank you for all of you who are tuning in to Black Lives Matter Radio. We try to continue conversations that cross the spectrum of civil rights and diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And we're so pleased to have Tawana with us uh, here tonight. Uh, I'm going to jump right in. Um, Tawana is the epitome of professionalism. She is the epitome of success, at least the success that I try to achieve in my life. She's also a homegirl, <laughs> right? Tawana, Tawana and I both have the distinction of being raised in the Washington metropolitan area, Washington DC metropolitan area. So that's one of the only one of the things that that we have connected on, and we both have a reverent respect for academics and and also service, right? So Tawana, I have a test for you, right? Uh, I'm gonna give you four words and I'm gonna tell you what they mean to me, right? Or actually, I, rather what they mean to you. I want you to tell me what they mean to you. So first word is character. Second word is accountability. Third word is love. And the last word is leadership. And just so the audience knows, that's the shameless plug. So, <laughs> so tell, us, tell us how this book came to be and what you wanted to communicate to people. Oh, Tony, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, Hope and the, the platform is just amazing. So thank you so much. The call is what you're referring to, Tony. Um, character, accountability, love and leadership. Um, it was after the murder of Trayvon Martin that um, I began to realize that the loss of a young African-American male, in my opinion, that was innocent in all things. Um, was so close to home because coming from a home or family of girls, having a son in my care made me notice the impact of having a black male under my leadership, my kindness, my love and care that made me pay closer attention to what I needed to do to prepare him for the world that he would grow up in. And so the call, though it had many, many years of existence prior to the Trayvon Martin murder, I can tell you that it was initially my outreach to African-American males in the DC metro area that needed mentoring, that needed some support, that needed to help develop their, you know, them in character, accountability, love, and leadership. 
Um, and so it was a, a conferencing uh, opportunity where me and a number of different prominent black men in the DC metro area that planted seeds, right? But my son was the one that resurrected that inside of me um, after the, the murder. That is awesome. Um, you have a lot of uh, degrees, right? You have a degree in education, two degrees in education. You have a degree in chemistry, and then you have a degree of divinity. What did you want to be when you grew up? When you were a little girl, <laughs> you were looking across a landscape of all these opportunities. What did you want to be? What drove you to those individual uh, uh, disciplines? You know, it's interesting <laughs> because when I was a little girl growing up, um, I was split between two worlds. It was a world of um, members who are community advocates who were leaders, spiritual leaders in the community. And you know, during the civil rights movement, the church and civil rights were closely knitted, right? Yes. So yes. change agents historically were tied to the church. Mm -hmm. And so it was a calling on my, um, from my family, it was almost like the matriarchs of my family made sure that I was embedded in that community culture. So when I grew up, it was, it, it was told to me <laughs> that I was going to be a change agent in my community, but I had the foundation of spirituality and religion, et cetera, to help mo continue to move the movements, right? And so it was told to me that I was going to be <laughs> a part of that. And I embraced it, you know, because I understood the, the call. But I can tell you that as I matured and grew older, of course, I had fascinations with other things. It's like, but I can do that part-time. What else do I want to do, right? right? Um, right. But there are so many amazing people who contributed to my evolution when it came to education. So the science and mathematics became the call when I had a math teacher who looked past the disruptive little girl who was raggedy on the edges and said, there's more to you than meets the eye, right? And so he turned my passion for being disruptive to focusing on academics. And so that was the beginning of the turn. And so after that, it, it just kind of snowballed and, and kept going. But I never stopped being a change agent with that foundation that I grew up in, but everything else after that was all about problem solving, right? In the area of math and science. And so then as, I moved into my more senior years, I realized <laughs> <laughs> that um, education was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So as a, a person who taught, mentored, sponsored, I knew that I could educate er, generation after generation for as long as my brain and my mouth works, I can teach. And so that's what I choose to do until I can't do it anymore. I love it. And as a teacher, I am one of your students, uh, which brings us to Coach Diversity Institute. Tell us, uh, tell us about that. Tell us how it started and, and talk to us about how you have used your passions to move that forward and connect to the passions of others who want to follow in your footsteps. Okay, so when I was in corporate America, um, I had basically, you know, worked my way up to the professional ranks where I got kind of kind of tapped out. You know, it was like it, time for a change. And so I wanted to um, branch out and is explore entrepreneurship um, because when you reach a certain level of your professional growth, it's all about the people. It's about professional development. It's no longer about the gadgets and the widgets that you're building. So I fell in love with professional development. And so that teacher in me started to really develop. 
And so I uh, decided to step out and start my own management consulting firm. So organizational development in, in a part of that professional development track became, took my attention. And I discovered coaching as I was building services for that um, consultancy. And I can tell you that when you think about what's missing in the work that you do, I discovered that coaching was the missing piece for me to deliver an amazing product for my clients. And so that connection um, was what caught, you know, caused me to say, all right, now that I know what coaching can do, now let's look at what's missing in coaching. Right. Okay. So I started to problem solve, solve what was missing. And so I, what was missing is black and brown people. That was missing. Um, the other thing that was missing was the conversation of how do you talk to people who have different human experiences that are not taught in these curriculums. That was missing. And right. so the two primary things that I decided to do was to fill the gap. And so I went on the hunt to establish the connecting points to communities of color. And so in 2008, when I started my practice, I decided that I was going to start first with the Black community, the community I represented. And so I went out and found relationships with professionals who were in the coaching space and created the Black Life Coaches Network. After years of doing that, I realized that all coaching schools were not equal, Mm -hmm. as well as there was a missing dialogue regarding how to coach people of different communities, particularly marginalized communities. How do you uplift communities of difference? How do you lift up communities and empower them so that they can improve their circumstances? And so that's where in 2015, I rebranded my work and created Coach Diversity. And that was to help to bridge the gap in making sure coaches of color had the skills and tools to help uplift those who felt marginalized those who felt disempowered to feel empowered. Since 2015, can you give us an idea of how many people, how many individuals have graduated from one of your programs? Because I want, and the reason why I'm asking that question, I'll be very transparent. I want people who are listening to this to understand the impact that your work has had uh, on not just the continent of the United States, but the globe. So, so globally, how many students have graduated from your program? We just celebrate our fifth year as Coach Diversity, and I am so excited to know we are way over 500 students since we started. So we literally are approaching 600 students as we as we speak, and that is a, a significant accomplishment, right? The need is great, um, and we are attracting the most phenomenal professionals just like yourself into our <laughs> classrooms, and we are really making an impact in the coaching uh, field. And I'm just so excited about it. So again, over 505 years. Awesome. Here's the other thing I want to draw some attention to. You graduated from an HBCU. Oh. I want you to talk to a little bit. Give us, give us an understanding and give us some awareness. Give us some a plug for the HBCUs and, and what uh, that, you know, that means that's meant to you, that experience meant to you. And, and of course, I've got to slip in a question that I want you to think about in relationship to uh, the first female woman of color being in the uh, vice president seat and, and her coming from an HBCU. Over to you. 
okay, so it's kind of hard not to look real geeky and smile <laughs> right now, but I'm telling you, I went to Howard University, right? So I'm class of 95 at Howard University. Um, I got my undergraduate's degree um, at Howard. I can tell you that being a woman of color who literally, now, Tony, you know this, you were born in D.C. just like me. Mm-hmm. I don't know how far you were from the campus of Howard University, but I promise you, as a child, I did not know the campus was there. Okay. All right. So I wasn't aware that there was this place of learning and, and Black excellence and all that when I was growing up in the city. Right. Now, somebody would use landmarks, like, you know, down there on Meridian or, you know, you, mm-hmm. you landmarks. Meridian Hill Park. We're, we're going up Meridian Hill. Malcolm X Park. <laughs> But you don't connect those dots, right? right? So when I tell you that when I decided that it was time for me to take that leap and go to college, um, my decision to go to an HBCU was because I wanted to dial back in to my community and get a and get education from what I considered members of my community, like aunts and uncles and, and cousins. To be able to learn from people all over the world, having the Black experience, and the, the Black diaspora, to have professors who have who are well well read and researched and and who have opinions and thoughts that are just life changing, right? Um, I had to put myself back into what I call um, the home, back in the kitchen where everybody, you know, doing right. what we do. Oh, I know. Conversation. And have real talk and real conversations without feeling you have to code switch or, or pretend to be something or cover your truth. No, Black excellence is the HBCUs. And what we do at HBCUs is share our experience without judgment and we embrace the learning. And so it's phenomenal to know that our um, Madam Vice President is from Howard University, but she attended an HBCU of her choice. And how it just happens to be the choice that she made. And I can tell you, we all are very proud. And it, of course, causes us to, to beam, you know, if you are bison. But I think the draw to the HBCUs now um, is because we are seen and heard on our campuses. We are respected and appreciated differently on our campuses versus mm-hmm. other campuses. Not to say the other ones don't have communities where you can thrive and they're, you know, have presence. I'm just saying that in an HBCU, they were designed, they were created so that we could be seen and heard, be comfortable and not be brave. Um, let me throw you a curveball question. Don't feel bad. I, I throw everybody a curveball question. And because of my love of respect for you, it's going to be a softball, really. Um, I, when I was in college, I remember I had a an advisor, a counselor say to me, Tony, if you've gone to African-American black education process all your life, you need to at some point experience what it is to go to a white institution as well. You need to understand how to navigate both worlds. And I remember when he told me that, I really took it to heart. And so I started out at UDC, right? <laughs> you don't know about UDC unless you live in the city, right? I started out at UDC. I then transferred from the University of Maryland. And he was right. The nuance, there were nuances about the education that were very different. 
you were from Howard University to UPenn. Wow. Tell us about that transition and how you navigate, navigated that. Well, you know, the what the truth is, is that when I left the city, I went into the most white suburbs of Virginia, where the Ku Klux Klan walked the neighborhood. So I went from a very different extreme. So I grew up, a part of my life was in the city, but when it became too dangerous, my parents left and we okay. moved to those suburbs. And so I had a very, um, what I call um, very different suburban experience for you know those finishing years before I graduated high school. So it is true that my decision to go back to a Howard University was because it was to reconnect with what I believe I no longer had. So gotcha, I actually gotcha. agree. So you went to the University of District of Columbia. It's almost yeah. like an HBCU, right? Yes, so, it is. So the University of District of Columbia was like a neighbor school in DC. That mm -hmm. I agree with because a number of times um, we can say that you need to experience certain things because if you come in, in city, DC is small. So if you haven't had that exposure, you could serve yourself well to get the exposure, whether it's an undergrad or grad. And so for me going, once I finished Howard, the experience of being in community at Howard, different from community at Penn, for sure. For yes, sure. yes. And yes. it wasn't, it's not a good or a bad, it's just different. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, well, Tawana, you've been very polite. I'm going to call it out a little bit. <laughs> and, and I want to get your thoughts on this. One of the things you said about the HBCU experience is, is I found to be very true. I have some dear friends who graduated from Hampton, Howard, and a and and, uh, and one of the things that you said that resonated with me that I hear from them is, you know, it's a shared experience, right? You have rivalries, but really it is about cropping each other up, propping each other up, pushing each other, pulling sometimes. I found the difference between the two environments was um, in the white serving um, or traditionally white institution that I went to, it was really about competition. It, it was really about, you know what? We're gonna throw the meat on the table and you strong enough to, to get a little piece of it to get fed or not, <laughs> right? Now, that, that was my experience. And, you know, if, if, if I'm being, um, if I continue to be transparent about it, it did prepare me for a lot that I dealt with in the corporate arena, the corporate space. What was your experience? How, how would you explain to people? How would you translate what happened to you? Well, I can tell you that what you're saying is true. Um, I have a 25-year-old daughter who ex could express her experience very similar. Um, it is a competitive, different, co a different type of competition. Yes. In HBCU, there's competition, but it's friendly community type where we are leveling one another up. There's going to be someone that's going to finish, you know, number one, but we're holding each other accountable and pushing each other, right? In the other environment, um, being that it was grad school, a different temperament a little bit, right? But I can't tell you that, you know, you do feel a bit separated or you don't feel like there's real community. You, you, most of the students are looking to establish community, like looking around going, who's going to be in my circle? And I mean, that's just the difference between an Afrocentric versus Eurocentric mindset. So an Afrocentric mindset is community versus individuality. 
And so we're looking for that support. And if you don't know, I mean, literally, it's it's who's going to be on this ride with me because it can be quite lonely. And so I agree. It is about um, digging deep and finding out, can you go at it alone? Because right. you have, you might just have to. And are you willing to um, only sell part of yourself and preserve the rest because it's exhausting having to cover or to code switch? Um, and as even in graduate school, I, I mean, that's the truth, you know? So, um, no, I agree with you, Tony. Yeah, it's interesting. You use the word code switch and code switch is a word that's popped up on our show before. And for those who are not sure what that means, it's basically this different presence, right? You don't bring yourself uh, fully into a different environment until you have a level of comfort there. And, and for some of us, that comfort never comes. So the way you would talk at home to your wife and your children, the way you would talk to your friends if you were at a gathering, would then completely transform because you wanna make sure that assumptions about who you are and where you come from and, and how professional you are aren't lost because you speak a different vernacular or you, you show up in a particular way. So code switching is, is one of those things that for those listeners who uh, are exposed to us for the first time, write that down and do some, do some research on it uh, because it's an important part of, of, of what we deal with in our communities. So let's go a little deeper, right? Uh, Hope Again, Hope and I had some really spirited conversations over the last week and uh, her challenge to me was, was to go deeper, right? And because of, and I explained to her, a lot of the depth or the, the depth that I go to with any guest that we have on, one is one of respect, <clears throat> but then two, making sure that people who are listening to the conversation have a sense of understanding what they're hearing because that's not always going to be the case. So I want to I want you to talk about what George Floyd, uh, the George Floyd murder, what that meant to you, how it impacted you. You and I had this conversation, how the phone really started ringing off the hook and you had to get very specific about who you said yes to and who you didn't. Tell us about that story. Tell, tell us the impact of that event on you and your business. Right, absolutely. So after, now we were already busy um, before. Yeah. The pandemic was the first shift where people started focusing on um, leveling up their professional skills. And so more people started enrolling in classes and to, to gain this new skill. Then the Joy Floyd incident happened and the transition of the, uh, um, the eyes of America on the just the, you know, the outrageous numbers of murders and the outrageous numbers of offenses by the um, law enforcement, right? Um, and some of the injustice that people could finally witness, right? That we have been speaking about for, for decades, for centuries. Okay, so when that all happened, the first thing for me is, um, it's almost like, you know, the punch that I got from the Trayvon Martin from the call, being able to say this, I'm called now, my attention is here. There's something that's happening. I need to stand up as a change agent. What am I going to do? How am I going to be a part of this? What, what do I need to do to help support the people that I serve? And so when I think about all the alumni and coach diversity, the first thing that came to mind was how am I going to be able to support the students as they are on the front lines as change agents 
advocating for change and how am I going to be available for them while they're hurting? Because you got to remember when you are a social activist or an advocate in this space, even, you know, as an ally or being on the front lines, it it can be exhausting. Mm. And so for me, my first thought was, what about the students? What about the alumni who have to answer or give answers um, to the communities that they serve? And so so immediately my my phone started ringing and I started checking in with people because I wanted to make sure that they had the right words because I knew the questions were coming. I knew that they were going to be asked, what do you think? What do you feel? And the point that, that I wanted to make sure that they all had was that you must serve yourself before you start serving again, right? Fill yourself up, do some self-care because the microphone is going to be in your face. The cameras are coming. You know, the dialogue is starting and you need to be ready because otherwise you're going to get exhausted, right? And so I'm selective in what I do to preserve and to keep what I need for my students as I teach. But that is the same attitude and, and attention that I gave. And I'm telling you, the level of frustration and the pain and the hurt, the shock, right? And many of us are still dealing with it, right? And the reason why it's constant is because we're seeing, you know, repeating incidences over whether it's a historical reflection or current state or future state, right? It's constant. And so I'm constantly reminding our students how to care for themselves to prepare themselves. Awesome. Um, This is a first for us. We got a question in before we even started. Uh, and I'm going to read the question or at least the, the topic that the viewer wanted to discuss. It says, you should talk about the thousands of city minorities who have been killed in crime ways resulting from defunding the police per the request of BLM. Minneapolis just, just had to add $6.4 million back to its police budget. So before, before you start, I just want to lay a little bit of perspective on this because people never understood what defend the police was in the first place. They they assumed it meant we're going to give less money to police officers. We're going to cut their salaries. We're going to cut the budgets. And that's never what it was. But given that this is a question that they wanted uh, your thoughts on and not mine, I'm going to kick it over to you first. Well, the crime that we, the crimes that are being committed in the community, right, is consistent. Like there, there's a consistent appearance, an occurrence of crime. Okay, mm-hmm. it's consistent, and it's it's going to happen in every city, right? That's that's why we have you know law and order. When you say because or at the request of BLM, your focus is misplaced. Because the idea that defunding the police and the lack of police present is now, um, you know, caught showing an increase in crime is not accurate. Statistically, it's not even accurate. So before comments like that, and I would, I really wish people would um, look at the statistics and the facts before um, we establish opinions and things like that, because I'm fact-based. I like to say, what does the the statistics have to say about crime rate and how historic, what the numbers have always been in the city and where the spikes are and where the dips are. That is more important to me than to just say, generally speaking, you defunded the police, therefore there is an increase in crime. I don't, I can't say that that is okay and, that, and nothing to speak it out. I want to see the numbers. I want to see the numbers. 
That's what I appreciate most about you. You are a data-driven person. And again, for anybody who has questions about what the BLM wanted versus what they didn't want and, and, and who, who encompassed, what the Black Lives Movement encompasses in terms of what different people are doing in different spaces to try to, because the Black Lives Matter movement is a civil rights movement, right? And so the civil rights have been in a, in active for, for years and years and years and years. This, this is just not just started. So it's, it's interesting. And to focus on one aspect of the movement, to me, always seems a little out of place. And, and, but I get it. You know, we've got to educate people as we can. You know, these, this is a good platform for us to kind of speak our thoughts on it. Tawana, you have done so much in your life. Talk to me a little bit about what it's like to be an entrepreneur. I know you to be a woman of service. I know you to be a, uh, an instructor. And, and as I was telling uh, Hope earlier today that uh, I recognize you as my Sifu, my sensei. You're, you're a wonderful teacher, wonderful professor. Tell us what life is, and I, and I want to be specific about this. Tell us about life as an African-American female entrepreneur and how that might be different from what others have to deal with in this space. It's different in that you come to the table over-educated, over-credentialed, proving and having to demonstrate your ability versus being uh, having someone appreciate your potential which is typically what others are evaluating. Oh, you have the potential of being great versus you've demonstrated you've been great, right? So demonstration is what, as an entrepreneur, a Black female entrepreneur, is typically what we have to do, right? So I come from, you know, I'm old school. So the work I had to put in to even be here today, right, is about demonstrating the fact that I had what it took to be here today, right? So I, it is my hope that moving forward that others will not have to do that, right? Where the statistics say, or the facts will say that a person or a woman of, of African-American descent would have to work twice as hard as her counterparts in order to be seen and heard. If, that's, if that was not true, you know what I mean? Then I wouldn't have to have had multiple degrees and present myself in the way that I have, but that's a fact. All right, so getting back to it, that it is not, it was not difficult. I wouldn't say it was even hard. It required focus. It required problem solving skills. It required determination. It required, um, you know, uh, self-care. <laughs> it required um, surrounding myself with people who were smarter than I, I am. Um, people who were encouraging, not a bunch of yes people, people who knew that I had that knew what it took to make it happen. I like being challenged and my mentors challenge me. Um, we, one of the things as an entrepreneur that I appreciate and have and love seeing is that I have been able to help those who are coming up in the, in this space of entrepreneurship, um, meet and or exceed the million dollar marks. It is just, it's just a part of what we do. Um, but you have to surround yourself with the right people who understand what your journey is. Um, the space we're in regarding education and what is focused on diversity and coaching, it is a unique space. But I have, you know, being an entrepreneur, that's not the only thing that I do in the space of entrepreneurship, right? right. So the creativity and all things that make me the woman that I am in business um, is very diverse, but it started because my grandmother was an entrepreneur. My grandfather mm. was an entrepreneur. Um, my, you know, and being surrounded with that mindset that you had to 
uh, care for your own, take care of your own because you can't depend on other people to put food on your table was the mindset. Right. Um, before we got uh, went live, you were talking about some of the things that were of concern to you given the, how far we are, we, we are from the new administration and uh, we've seen some things repealed. We haven't gotten instructions on other things we wanna see move forward. Uh, the, the vaccinations, and then boom, Texas hits. Just, just give a share with us your mindset um, because, because I'm fairly confident you've got some um, alumni watching this, <laughs> watching this exchange. Just, just give uh, those of us that you have poured into some of your thoughts and, and maybe some ideas on how to help people move through this time. Right, and so um, one of the things that's top of mind for me is our, one, all of the alum that I know and their family members and my friends who are um, in, in, who are struck right now with some very unfortunate circumstances in the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that the entire state is not impacted, but too, too many of them are, okay? So my heart and my mind has been with them since I heard about it. Um, and I can tell you that on top of the challenges and frustrations that we were already experiencing post-traumatic previous administration with the transition to the Biden-Harris administration, so many people are still untangling themselves from one situation and now, now find themselves in another. Right. Right. And so what I, my biggest concern is being able, again, it, just like I was saying before, right after we had the George Floyd incident, what do you need in this moment? Right. How do you need to serve yourself? What do you need to do? Now here, the biggest thing on my mind, and I've said this so many times, and I say it in the classroom, you know this, we can't take on every aspect of the system. Right. We can't, we, we can look at the system. We know that the systemic injustice exists in multiple dimensions. Mm -hmm. And so because we know that we individually, we can't take it all on, we must find out what is it do you believe you're called to change? And I need you to focus on those areas and be laser focused on it to the point where you see yourself in it and wrap all in it, right? And finding resources and services to help you navigate in that one space. Because if you look at the big, the biggest parts of it, it is overwhelming and it will sit you down and you will not be active. But if you are called to address one, two, or three things, make that be your single focus and go hard, play hard in that paint, right? But I really want you to know that you can't take on everything. You must reserve your energy and preserve your energy for the things that really call you, right? So when I say I'm called to support the African-American male, it's because I'm raising an African-American African male. When I tell you that I'm called to work in education, it's because I am passionate about other girls who were sitting in the classroom that looked like me, that were judged or, or overlooked or passed over because they thought that I wasn't smart enough or I, I'm not good enough. So I know where my focus is. And so I stay in my lane and I go hard in that space. And that is what's on my heart and mind when I talk about our alumni and being able to support not just those from Coach Diversity Institute, but all of those who are listening. I really need you to capture this because the, this seems like the earth is purging itself. 
you know, we have the pandemic and we have the protests and now we have, you know, the results of the election. I got to tell you that many of us are divided in our will and understanding what it is that we want to do. Some of us have given up hope. Some of us are so tired and we're frustrated that we need to rest. And I submit for you to consider resting is, is probably what you need to do if your body is calling you to do that. But as soon as you've rested, I want you to get right back into your passion and begin to be problem solvers and figure out what you can do to address those issues that you're called to solve. For those of uh, those listeners that have not been in your class, for those people who are not your alumni, that was just a sample of what you get in class. <laughs> it is so inspirational. I mean, when you get in your groove, man, it's 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 like wow. Like if you notice my body language, I was just like taking it in. And so uh, I am so thankful that you have the passion that you have, and and that you do work hard in your space, and and that uh, you use some languages that has uh, resonated with me, which was. Uh, Go hard to paint, you know, go hard or, or don't go at all. And so it's so, uh, and, and there are a lot of people who understand uh, the energy it takes to do this work, right? You're, you're managing your own triggers uh, and, and you're managing the microaggressions that you have to kind of walk through on a day-to-day -day basis. You're trying to explain, people who are uh, explain to people who are curious about it, who don't have the lived experience. And you're trying to create a platform that your kids and your kids' kids can stand on and, and find success uh, of their own. Doesn't that sound exhausting when you say that? It, oh my gosh, I, I, let me tell you, I, I, won't, I won't take a nap right now, but anyway, it's not about me. <laughs> not, not, just talking about it makes me just want to take, take a, an hour nap. Um, you've done so much and, and I'm so grateful to know you and, and to be associated with you and to be a Coach Diversity Institute uh, graduate alum. What's next? What's next for Tawana? She's done so much. She's she's conquered so 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 much. She's 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 gotten this territory. She's expanded her territory. She's knocked down barriers, cracked ceilings. What's next for you? Okay, so I can I will on I can tell you uh matter of fact, right? Like the, I have I, this okay hold on i'm trying to figure out how the best way to say this um okay so i'm a futurist and you know this tony so you know yeah, i'm do. always going to look ahead i'm going to look at what tomorrow holds right mm -hmm. so i've spent the last two years studying the impacts of technology on our lives okay okay and i'm narrowly focused on how technology impacts the way we um teach train you know, and, and, and educate. Well, the pandemic has accelerated, significantly accelerated the need for technology to be introduced in moments like this, right? Yeah. And so yeah. when people weren't really thinking about it, they are now. And so yes. I have been studying and will continue to evolve the idea of having technology support the need for more, you know, agent change agents in the world. And mm -hmm. how do we do that using technology? And so it, it, to, of course, evolve the coaching community and how in technology, we're able to do more or with the one to many model using technology, mm -hmm. um, partnering with some amazing people who are designing platforms and using um, their brilliance um, at MIT and et cetera. And we are all focused on how do we integrate 
technology. Um, and I'm looking forward to being a part of a lot of these new discussions regarding technology and coaching. And so that's what's next. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. That's one of a few things that we're doing. That's one of many, I'm sure. And um, uh, again, I, I can't uh, tell people, I will not be able to express to people how much respect and uh, that I have for you and, and how happy I am that to be a part of your circle. Um, as tradition with the Black Lives Matter radio show, um, the last question or questions uh, that we reserve those for Hope uh, to kind of you know get her thoughts and, and of course, yeah, the wonderful thing about Hope and I working together is we represent uh, two different, several different communities, right? Uh, there's a there's a multifaceted uh, set of communities that that Hope and I really kind of uh, bridge, right? So uh, the last few questions we reserve for Hope. Hope, over to you. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Tawana. This is just fascinating and fabulous and exactly where I hope that we go with the show. Um, you actually took my, my question, one of my questions, which is what's next. Um, and I'm sure there's many things next and we look forward to keeping track of all of that with you because you're truly doing amazing work. But my, my question in terms of educating myself and our communities, all of our communities is what would you teach us? What's the one thing you'd like us to walk away with tonight? The one thing I would like your listeners and your viewers to take away is not to lose hope. We cannot remove hate from the earth. We can't remove hate, but there is hope that we can reduce the impacts of hate. So don't lose hope. I love that. I love that. So Keep going, go deeper with me. I, I have a Martha Beck life coach training. I don't have the, the depth of training that the two of you have, um, but I, I am curious as to, so what's under that? Don't lose hope and? Don't lose hope and, very similar to what Tony and I talked earlier about is um, staying focused on what you have the power to do. You know, what, what, what is available to you to change? So staying hopeful that you can have impact, staying hopeful that despite that hate, despite the fact that hate is not going to go away, that you're going to have opposing views, that you're going to have people that want to fight when you don't want, don't need to even fight, right? You're going to have opinions and, and, and facts bumping heads again and again. That is what I'm saying. It's being able to build the resilience to stay in the game, not check out, be hopeful, and continue to be on the front lines of change, knowing that it may happen in smaller increments. It may not be the leaps and bounds that you know we want to see um, here in the last year and a half as we've gone through this pandemic and now protest. But don't lose hope just because it's not moving at the rate and the speed that you wish and or dream about. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful and perfect. You know, as the storms hit Texas and um, the minority communities have been particularly hit, it, just listening on the news to how devastated they are. What is something that you think that um, all communities can come to, together to support each other in times of, you know, pandemics and you know, national weather changes? Yeah, so some of the things that, um all of those who have family in Texas, even if you're listening and you're in, you know, and you're in the state of Texas and there are people, your neighbors that are impacted. What I would submit for you to consider is that when we do this work, community now more than ever means more 
now. Um, for, for decades, we have, in a lot of ways, disconnected ourselves from the need to show support to our neighbor, to be neighborly, to care um, about communities. Some, some of the Southern states have always been a part of that rhythm. Some of the um, urban communities kind of detached from it, but we're now seeing the need to increase numbers and support, right? And so it's almost as if the pandemic to what's happening in Texas is showing that you can't do this alone. You need neighbors, you need friendliness, you need people to get over themselves and get in, in, in help, right? Um, that these are human beings that have, you know, blood running through their veins and they have heartbeats, right? Um, forget the fact that they don't look like you or, or break bread with you at your dinner table. They're still human beings and people need help. Children are suffering, right? Um, some of the most tragic things that I've heard is people freezing to death and, and, and the need to be aware of that and do whatever you can to support. Um, that's all that that's what I, I I'm hoping that we can do. And I think that goes back to what you said earlier about looking for community. Um, I, I went to Penn too as an undergrad, and I was actually looking for as a Jewish woman, you know, looking for other people. And it's kind of easy because there's lots of Jews at, at Penn, but you know, so finding but finding diverse people who have different perspectives on the world is what to me education is all about. So I absolutely love your message and the work you're doing and, and your relationship with Tony, who's fantastic and always brings to the surface the things that we really need to be talking about. And increasingly so, we wanna be educating people. So I think we'll end with that, um, that thought that we are one big community, right? That we need to work together as a team and work in unison. So I'll throw it back to you, Tony, for a final question. Sure, uh, Tawana, there was something you mentioned and I counted, I counted it. You mentioned it three times. The last question I have for you is, how do you manage self-care for Tawana? You mentioned right. self-care and how important that was. You mentioned it three times, right? Um, and I won't go into the, the faith-based uh, <laughs> uh, significance of three, uh, but I'll let you just talk about uh, how important self-care is to you and what you do to uh, make sure that Tawana is well taken care of. Right. You know, so Tony, you know, when you, you know, when you have generals in this, in this, in the field fighting, right, um, we will sometimes forget the need to listen to our bodies, um, to give ourselves what we are sensing. So if I want a nap at two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm going to take a nap. If I want ice cream, I'm gonna give myself ice cream because we are living in a time where we have yet to study the impacts of COVID-19 on our mental health, on our bodies, right? Um, it, it's the need to listen deeply in honoring ourselves, you know, from exercise to, to silence, um, to reading, to feeding, whatever it is, fun and re recreation, um, embracing and getting love and receive, giving love and receiving love, right, Tony? So when I say self-care, I really mean serving myself so that I can be available when I'm needed. And so I listen deeply to what my, my, my body and my mind is whispering to me because I can override what I'm hearing because I can get busy and let the external noise drown it out. But I'm in a season in the last year and a half where even though I've done it in the past, I'm even more intentional about serving myself because my family, my community that I serve academically, 
all my neighbors here in my community. I want to be available and I want to be around. You know what I'm saying? I, you. I don't yeah. want to tap out. It's too early for that. So yeah. I think it's, um, it's about listening to my inner voice and giving me everything I want. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to the Black Lives Matter radio show. Tonight's guest was Dr. Tawana Burris. Hope is our co-host and owner of Incandescent uh, PR. Uh, thank you for listening this evening, Tawana. Uh, many blessings to you and, and many thanks to you for joining this evening. To, uh, Hope, is there anything you want to say in, in closing? No, I just, I love the universal message. And I think, you know, we all have more in common than we don't. And so trying to bring that to the surface. And I have a working on the What's Next journal with my co-collaborator, Cynthia DeLorenzi. So we'd like, love to incorporate your thoughts about what's next into that project. So just bringing us all together, sharing the wisdom, sharing the light. So thank you both. Thank you both. And thanks to our audience for listening to the Black Lives Matter radio show every Sunday night, 6 p.m. Eastern on Incandescent Radio, Incandescent TV and Facebook Live. So we'll check out for tonight and we wish you safety, health, love, and peace. So that's all for today's episode of the Black Lives Matter radio show on incandescentradio.com. We have an amazing lineup of future guests, just like you heard on today's show. So be sure to tune in for another episode and tell your friends about us so they can listen too. If you or someone you know should be a guest on our show, send me an email, hopecatsgibbs at gmail.com, and we'll be in touch. Again, this is blacklivesmatterradioshow.com on the Incandescent Radio Network. We look forward to talking to you. Until then, stay safe and be well.